0: Let's take our Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 2. We're going to read verses 18 through 22 this morning. Um, The difference, big difference between chapter 1 and chapter 2 is that chapter 1, there is basically no opposition to Jesus. Chapter 2 begins a series of of five conflicts that that show the way that the religious leaders uh, have conflict with Jesus. Uh, They begin to be bothered by him. And so in our text a few weeks back, Jesus heals a paralytic, and then some people are bothered that he claims to have the authority to forgive sins. Then last week, chapter 13 through 16, Jesus has lunch with Levi and his friends, and some are bothered, of course, that Jesus is actually a friend of sinners. And so the text that we're about to read is the the third area of conflict. And on, on the surface, you read it and you go, well, this is an issue about fasting. But it's really essentially this, Uh, in the eyes of those who ask the question, Jesus is not nearly religious enough. And so Jesus says, well, the fact is that man-made religion is not compatible with the new kingdom work of God that I have come to usher in. So we pick up at Mark chapter 2, we're going to read verses 18 through 22, and I remind you that this is God's word written. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and Jesus uh, and, and people came and said to Jesus, "Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast." And Jesus said to them, "Can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So this is God's Word. Let's pray for His help. Father in heaven, we thank You so much for Your Word. And we pray now as Your people that you would quiet our hearts, and that as we have heard your word read, now that you would give us ears to hear it preached, that you would speak your word to your people. And we pray once again that you would be willing uh, to use a wretched, sinful, crooked stick like me to point this narrow way to Christ Jesus, our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen. I think there's times when you read the gospel narratives and you, and you come to places in the narratives, and as you read those things, you go, this is confusing. This is perplexing. Um, for sure, when I was young in my faith and I would read a, a place like this, something that's confusing and doesn't make sense, I would have simply said, why does Jesus not just make it abundantly clear so that nobody walks away going, what is he talking about? Well, I think the passage we read uh, is, is perplexing at first. And maybe you're like me. I don't understand why anybody would want to miss one meal, let alone three or ten. Um, likewise, I have very little experience with sewing. I didn't even know that you could purchase uh, a pre-shrunk piece of cloth to go over your well-worn place in your jeans. Uh, got no experience building a vineyard. Got no experience stitching up wineskins. and so that makes no sense to me either. Maybe you feel the same way. Well, here's the deal. Anytime you come to a place like this in the Gospels, where you're confused or you're stumped by something that Jesus says... You need to remember two things. Number one, the Bible is written into a context that is very different from the context in which you live. And so, oftentimes the illustrations are much more fitting for his original audience. First century Jews instead of 21st century Americans. And so, it's important really to figure out what did he mean to that original audience first and then how can I apply it. Number two, you need to know that that in the early part of Jesus' ministry, he is deliberately veiling In other words, guarding carefully what he communicates about himself. And he does that for a couple of reasons. So that those who belong to him will hear it and and sort of want to lean in or investigate or find out more about what Jesus is talking about. While at the same time, he veils it from those who really have no interest in learning who he is. In fact, the Father in heaven and Jesus are are setting a course, a timing, that must land Jesus at the cross for the sake of the Passover so that he can be the Lamb of God slain to take away the sins of the world on that third Passover of his public ministry. And so if he guards some things early on, it is precisely so the timing of the Lord will be preserved carefully. And so we encounter these Pharisees Who hold traditions, traditions which can be neutral. Traditions don't have to be bad or good, they can be neutral. But what Jesus says to them here is that some of you are holding your traditions so tightly that there is no room and no place in your heart for the true and real work of the gospel. And so, the passage before us, Jesus says, Take joy in the lasting newness of the gospel, which means, Not only that everything else that you value in this whole world must become second place, but also that there are some things that you hold dearly which may actually be quite incompatible with Christ Himself. And so in these verses, we're going to ask three questions. What's behind the question? What's revealed in the answer? And then what's buried in the illustration? So first, what's behind the question? John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting. And you Some of you might say, I don't even know what fasting is. Well, it's a a deliberate refrain from eating food for a period of time. But to be sure, nobody in the ancient world was thinking about fasting as a method of of weight loss. People did not think that way at all. Nobody in Israel would have done that. In fact, what they did was, was use fasting as a way to devote themselves to prayer, to show a heart of repentance towards the Lord. In the Old Testament, actually, there was only one fast which was required. And that fast was leading up to the Day of Atonement. And in, in the setting of that first fast, it was, it was picturing that my heart really is burdened and, and, and afflicted over my sin. And so, this repentance, which is not sufficient, of course, to pay off God for your sins was simply there to show that my heart really is ready to to humbly receive the grace of God which He's willing to offer. And so if you think about the context of the Day of Atonement, it's actually beautiful. You think about it. You fast to prepare for this one day in the year. And the fast ends when a spotless lamb is slain symbolically to, to make payment for your sins and mine. It's profound mercy that God would be willing to accept a sacrifice to pay for my sins. And then it is designed in this particular feast an opportunity for you and I, God's people, to feast upon this picture of His grace. And you see, don't you then, how that would be pointing us to the Lord's table where Christ's sacrifice is made, you and I having repented of our sins and looked upon the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus gives us this picture of his body and his blood spilled, so that you and I, like our forefathers before us, would come and, and feed upon his grace. Well, here's what happened This this one expression of piety and consecration began to be added to and built upon. So that they added more and more fasts in the religious year. So that by the time you get to the first century, Pharisees fast two times a week. They fast on Mondays and they fast on Thursdays. And you might remember that, that, that parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Luke chapter 18, two men, says Jesus, went into the temple to pray. And the Pharisee thanks God first that he's not like this tax collector. And then he begins to recite some of his good deeds And the very fact that he fasts twice a week is really number one on his list. Over to the left is the tax collector beating his breast. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Why are John's disciples fasting? Well, John's baptism is is a baptism of repentance. And this imagery of fasting is really consistent with the the heart of repentance. It, It carried the same theme. We don't know for sure why both of them are fasting, but we know they're following their personal religious leader. And so the fact that Jesus calls himself or or thinks of himself as as a leader of the Jewish religion causes them to come and say, well, you don't fast. And then those who follow you don't fast either. So what's behind the question? Well, it's an indictment that, that Jesus and his followers are not nearly as pious as they ought to be. Uh, you see fasting used or misused among Christians today. When it's misused, it almost always follows the same line of thinking. And that is that the deeply pious, the ones who really care about their faith, the one who truly loves God, those are the ones who are fasting. Fasting. And here you and I might notice this is where our Catholic friends and our Pentecostal friends are actually much closer than they might at first think. One church commands a fast from meat every Friday during Lent as an act of penance. And another strongly encourages a certain number of days of prayer and fasting and it's prescribed maybe 21 from the headquarters of the megachurch. And to be sure, Christians really can fast. But let me say first, it is no longer mandated. We no longer celebrate the Day of Atonement. Instead, that's been replaced by the weekly Lord's Day. And we don't fast on that day, friends. You're here to feast. And so we feast on God's Word. And then we come and we feast upon the Lord's table. And the truth is, if you do not attend worship, in other words, you do not physically come to church, then you are starving yourself of the joy of the feast that Jesus has instituted for your soul. In that sense, what you'd be doing is is choosing to fast instead of come and, and feast. And no amount of crackers and juice that you might have in your little bed is going to ever be equal to Taking the Lord's Supper with God's people in worship. After the resurrection of Christ, fasting is not only allowed, but it does become somewhat common in the church. And it and it can really do have legitimate usage. Our own Westminster Confession of Faith speaks about fasting in chapter 21. But but you remember Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 6. He says, fasting is is private, it's it's voluntary. And it doesn't put God in your debt, and it doesn't obligate Him to answer your specific prayers in a specific way. Do you, do you see what's behind the question? Jesus, you aren't performing the same religious exercise that we perform. Therefore, you are not as righteous as us. Do you see what Jesus could have said? I'm actually the only one standing here with any righteousness of my own. And my disciples are learning that I give the righteousness that the law really demands, that God demands. And I say this because those who will look upon Jesus for not being righteous enough might also look down on those who believe that the righteousness of Jesus is always enough. And this can take a lot of forms, during summers when I was in college. I worked at a particular summer camp, and it was taught and implied by guilt, by coercion, that the really faithful ones were those who would be willing to fast once a week and also get up at 5 a.m. and pray with a group of counselors and then also run certain hills And all of this was done in the name of humbly laying your heart before the Lord. And not surprisingly, humbly laying your heart before the Lord was soon replaced by self-righteousness. Look, I'm disciplined enough to get up at 5 a.m. And fast. And pray with other people. And also run and so consequently, the, the fruit of those disciplines in the hands of a bunch of 18 to 22-year-olds was not humility before the Lord. It was actually pride before others. Pride that sounded exactly like what's behind this question. Why don't you do the religious exercises that we do? And so friends, if, if some of you have anything in you that might be prone to take pride in your works, For the Lord. Before anything else, know this. Jesus supplies all of the righteousness that you will ever need, and for you to try to take undue pride and count it as righteousness before the Lord is to basically say, your righteousness isn't enough. In a sense, it's to degrade Christ. Instead, take joy in the lasting newness of the gospel. What's behind the question? Now, what's revealed in the answer? We pick up at verse 19. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And, and so it's an illustration of a, of a wedding feast. But the fact is that the people who heard him first would not have connected the dots as you and I can connect the dots because in the Old Testament, there was no uh, image of, of a bridegroom as being the Christ, as being the Messiah. And for sure, this is the first place that Jesus begins to use that image and it gets carried on through the New Testament all the way through the book of Revelation. What would have caught their attention is this. Jesus basically says, In my presence, the sorrow, the somber grief connected to fasting doesn't fit. And I would have suspected that that sound sounded wildly arrogant. And the truth is, if Jesus is not God, it's incredibly arrogant. Everybody else's disciples are grieving. But since you're here with your disciples, they get to have a wedding party? Jesus says, yes, that's precisely what I'm saying. Because the purpose of fasting in the Old Testament was to acknowledge sin, and by acknowledging sin, then to acknowledge the distance that sin creates from God. And then when fasting evolved into more frequent usage, it was still man-made observance, still signifying grief and and distance over sin. Sin. And so Jesus reveals something on this day that they are not even asking. He reveals that I am the Christ. And by my presence, the distance that sin creates has now been removed. But Jesus reveals something else in his answer. Look at verse 20. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day See, you and I read this, and, and we want to put it in our own context first. What's he saying? But we have to remember that there's five men who are sitting there that he has chosen to be his disciples, and they will walk with him for the next three years, and during their time with him, they will enjoy great pleasure in being in the presence of Jesus, but there's a day coming when he really will be arrested, and he really will be crucified, and their joy will be turned to sorrow. And Jesus says, this is actually much bigger Than fasting. It's actually about the attitude of the heart, which is why he uses this bridegroom metaphor to contrast the the joy during the days of Christ's ministry on earth and the sorrow that will come in his crucifixion. But you and I are living 2,000 years later from Jesus's earthly ministry. So how does any of this relate to us? Well, if you would take fasting from this text, you should hold it very loosely, Jesus did not bring up the point of fasting, and He doesn't even answer it so much here. To be sure, the New Testament does have a lot to say about fasting. This passage doesn't. I will give you what I'll just call like a quick summary of what the New Testament teaches about fasting. And then I want to move on to the real point that Jesus makes. This side of the cross, Christians, you can fast. You can fast as sorrow over sin. You can fast as personal private expression of dependence upon God. You can fast as a way to remember that I need the spiritual nourishment that Jesus supplies much more than I need my next meal. Some Christians might set aside time on a specific day and and not eat simply so that they can pray over a particular issue of concern and the fact is that all of those are biblical and right uses of, of fasting. But here's the deal: Jesus constantly warns about practicing your religion before others. And so, if you fast, do not tell others about it. It's personal. It's between you and the Lord. You don't have to go, man. I'm just, I'm just a little faint. Why? Well, I'm fasting. You're fasting? Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's kind of what I do. I fast. You see, what you've gotten is the applause of men. And the Lord says, no, it's actually between me and you. But again, I would say this isn't really even about fasting. It's actually about the attitude of the heart. And the question is this Is your Christian faith actually characterized by joy? Or is it characterized by a somber, grumpy, cold, dead religion? And then what does your outward attitude say about your inner faith? Does it say that you believe that sarcasm and cynicism are actually marks of spiritual fruit? Or rather, that every trial and suffering can be viewed through the lens of a sovereign and good God who works all things together for your good. Does your religion harden others toward Christ, or does it warm them to Him? Are your trials here met with anger, with bitterness? Or with a sense that there's a new heavens and a new earth that I cannot yet see, but I will one day see? Are your eyes so greatly fixed on that new heavens and the new earth, when the dead are raised and the tears are wiped away and sorrow is vanquished? Are your eyes so fixed on the hope that Christ's reign ends in my eternal fellowship with the Almighty God? The joy or sorrow. If you do not have joy in your life, then you'd have to look at the Bible and you'd have to say, what is it actually that I'm lacking in the rest of the story? Jesus says, joy is actually the only right response in my presence. And so then how much more is joy a right response, not when Jesus is physically present, but when Jesus actually dwells in you through the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't God in you elicit even more a response of joy than God with you? Are there times and seasons of sorrow in the life of a Christian? Yes, absolutely, for sure. But a Christian who lives his life through the lens of sorrow rather than through the joy is a Christian who has forgotten the comfort of the gospel. So brothers and sisters, do not lose yourself in sorrow and forget the joy that Jesus has ushered in. Take joy in the lasting newness of the gospel. So we started with what's behind the question. Then we move to what's revealed in the answer. We close with what's buried in the illustration. It's verse 21 and 22. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh Wine skins. It's two illustrations. They basically teach the same point. You cannot sew something new over top of what's old. Otherwise, that piece of wool that you place over that when it gets wet and it dries, it'll actually pull the old fabric and you'll be left with a hole that's worse than it was before. And In fact, what that does is render the new and the old both useless. And then the other part, of course, you can't pour into something new pour something new into something that is old. Uh, To be clear, in the Bible, we really are talking about actual wine. This is not Welch's grape juice refrigerated. Um, Think about this. Before the days of bottling, how are we going to store our wine? Well, we're going to stitch a sheep or goat's hide. We're going to sew it together in a manner so that when we pour our wine in, we can carry it and that new wine, when it's poured in, begins to ferment, and it, and it would stretch the skin. But if I finish off that wine in that skin, I can't go and then add some more new wine to that old, dried, cracked skin. Because the fermenting process will burst through the old wine skin, and you, and you lose the skin, and you lose the wine all over the ground. It's actually a parable, two parables rolled into one point. And it's not so much the new over the old as it is two things that are essentially incompatible. Broadly speaking, says Jesus, the, the, the new kingdom of Christ is incompatible with the old traditions of, of Judaism. As it have evolved, Christ is ushering in a new covenant. And that new covenant really is going to build upon the old but this, this new covenant of Christ is more rich and full and expansive. So, so fasting in the, in the context of the day of atonement was designed by God to be a beautiful gospel-centered meaning to point us to the atoning sacrifice of Christ. But then fasting as it evolved turned into a prideful, self-righteous religiosity. And Jesus' point, man-made religious practices are incompatible with the gospel of the kingdom. But do you see what's buried in the illustration? It's a parable that says that Christ comes to usher out the old and to usher in the new. And you can't sow Christ over your unbiblical, tired, religious rituals. You can't pour Christ into a mechanical system of ceremonies and ordinances. If you've ever read The book of Galatians, that's precisely what the Apostle Paul addresses. Because in the church of Galatia, some wanted to reconcile the old laws of Judaism with the newly learned blessings of Christ. Let's don't just take Christ, let's take Christ and the law. Let's don't just take the Lord's Supper, let's take the Lord's Supper and Passover. Let's don't just take baptism, let's have baptism and circumcision. And Paul says, when you try to sow Christ over top of your traditions, you actually completely lose Christ. And you lose all the power of the gospel. And while we leave it on this level, it is wildly comfortable. Even if I was to transition and talk about some of the traditions of our own world that we hold on to tightly, we could still leave it far away from our hearts. But the fact is, a Christian is not simply one who has sown Jesus over top of his old life. R.C. Sproul says you can't have Christ and squeeze him into your old life and expect that to work. And the truth is you can do that in a couple of different ways. Some of you may be trying to do that today. Some would squeeze Jesus into an old licentious, live it up, Sin boldly part of your old man, but I'm going to go to church tomorrow. While others would try to squeeze Jesus into the cracked wineskin of the legalistic Pharisee within you, I'm so glad I'm not like the Christians that he just mentioned in his last point. I wonder, isn't Auburn... Already full of folks who think that they can squeeze Jesus into their old life. Squeeze him in and yet remain unchanged. Or sew him over top of what else they hold dear and hope that Jesus will not tear apart the garment of flesh underneath. Christ is truly incompatible with your sexual sin. He's incompatible with your racism. He's incompatible with your revenge. He's incompatible with your unforgiving heart, with your cruelty to others. Jesus is incompatible with your pride, with your selfish ambition. And yet here's the great comfort of the gospel. The wineskin parable reminds us that when God draws near to the, to the cracked heart of a sinner, he cannot and will not pour Christ into these old, dried, cracked hearts. They cannot hold the transformational fermentation of the Holy Spirit. He must give you a new heart, a new wineskin, to hold this beautiful, rich wine of the gospel. And God is the one who makes your heart ready for Christ to be poured in. And when He pours into you, He pours into this new heart, and He pours Himself out for you even as He pours Himself into you. Which is why Paul would say in Romans 5, 5, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is fantastic. Fantastic. The dynamic, ever-expanding picture of, of wine is actually a promise that the Christ who is poured into your heart will last forever. And even as He lasts forever, He is constantly renewing you, expanding and stretching Himself in and through your soul. Friends, if you belong to Christ, you will be changed. And therefore, we take joy in the newness of the gospel. Let's pray.